When someone is diagnosed with uterine cancer, in most cases, their uterus announces there's a problem by bleeding when it's not supposed to or bleeding too heavily. Breast cancer, in most cases, makes itself known by a lump, a nipple discharge, or an abnormality on a mammogram. But ovarian cancer is not so accommodating, and in many cases does not make its presence known until it has already moved well beyond the ovaries. My guest today is Dr. Shiva Gofreni, a practicing OBGYN who was diagnosed with stage 2 ovarian cancer at age 46. She's going to share her story and talk about early signs, symptoms, and detection of ovarian cancer, and advocating for yourself when something is not quite right. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. Welcome, Dr. Gofredi. I'm so glad to be having this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Stryker. I'm thrilled, thrilled to be here for so many reasons. First of all, I loved meeting you at the menopause meeting, the menopause society meeting. And I sadly say I'm thrilled to talk about ovarian cancer because it's sad. But wasn't that fun? You know, when I, when I go to these meetings, as when you go to these meetings, we have our posse, we have our friends, we have the people we hang out with. And we just met by chance because I happened to just walk up to you and hold up my microphone and say, what are you learning here? And it was one of those great meetings because we immediately connected and I said, I want to be friends with this woman. She is so cool. Well, and I love what you're doing to export so much knowledge and information, which is so important now that, you know, I've talked to a lot of physicians who don't want to go on social media, which I understand, but if we're not out there vocally, advocating for knowledge in an evidence-based way and in a way that people can understand, then we know that unfortunately it's going to be supplanted by others and their voices. And I I think that's why we connected so quickly is because we both have the same mission of giving accurate scientific information in a way that's understandable to a general audience, but is certainly not dumbed down. And quite frankly, most physicians would benefit from your information as as well as my information because it is very high level information. So the thing that's so fascinating about your story is, I mean, let's face it, prior to your diagnosis, you diagnosed ovarian cancer in many, many women, and you participated in surgeries of women who had ovarian cancer. So on on one hand, it speaks to how subtle the symptoms of ovarian cancer can be. And quite frankly, it's a little terrifying if an expert like you, who really understands ovarian cancer, didn't find it in yourself until it was already stage two. So one of the things I really want to spend some time on today is how are women who are not doctors going to figure it out if their symptoms are an indication of a problem and and how are they going to advocate for themselves? But before we get to that, I would just like you to tell us your story. How did this happen? What was going on in your life? What were your symptoms? Tell us, walk us back there. I'm going to start with the very beginning of it, which was, but I had had endometriosis for years and was actually diagnosed with a 17 centimeter endometrioma, which is that collection of ovary of endometriosis in my ovary. Okay, no, no, back I, up there endometriosis- because Americans don't think in centimeters. Yes, 17, 17 centimeters, centimeters is about 2.54 centimeters per inch. Right. So we're so let's talking- say about seven to seven ish inches, which is a good size. More we're talking a large grapefruit, a large grapefruit, large grapefruit. Um, and that was actually almost more shocking than my ovarian cancer. And they're linked and we'll explain why, because at the time, I had had several months during medical school of, wow, I'm feeling a lot of pressure on my bladder. I'm just feeling different, but my periods are just painful. And I was doing to myself what many of us as women do to ourselves and society does, which is, oh, it's just painful. Oh, I just have to deal with it. You know, we, we kind of, I hate the term gaslighting in that I think it's overused, but it's very accurate. We gaslight ourselves into thinking everything's okay. So only once the pain became really unbearable. And I was in medical school in my OBGYN rotation. Did I get diagnosed through an ultrasound with this? And the residents who did my ultrasound said, how did you walk around with this? It's akin to a pregnancy that is about 15 or 16 weeks, maybe even bigger, sitting on your bladder. But again, I'm a woman. And and because people can't see you, I will just point out that you are a thin woman. You know, a lot of times when, no, but a lot of times when somebody's very large, they don't even, their pregnancies don't even show until they're much later along. And women who tend to be slender, they do show. So here you are. I don't know. 
I didn't know you then, but if you look then the well, same way you do you're now, very cute. I mean, you know, that means that you were a slender woman walking around with a, a big cyst in your belly that probably made your belly stick out a little bit. Yeah. Um, and yes, to your point, it stuck out a little bit, but more so I could feel it, but I just kept saying to myself, it's probably nothing. So I okay, let me that. let me want to back up because I want to ask you something. Yeah. When you say it's probably nothing, do you think it's because of denial, or do you think it's because strong women just power through and say, "I'm busy. I'm in medical school. I don't have time to deal with this. It's nothing." You know, I think it is. I think it's. I'm gonna I'm gonna address it threefold. I think at the time when I was 28, and I had had a history since I was 12 of very painful periods but had been told by everyone, periods are painful, right? So I think the beginning of it was that as women, we are brushed off, right? By the global community of well-meaning physicians, family members, friends, everyone. You just have painful periods. Oh, it must've been something you ate. So that was where I came to it from. Plus I come from a strong family of we work hard. So I think it was both of those things coupled with, I'm a a medical student, I don't have time. I think for many women, not me, but this is why now my my aggressive rhetoric about not ignoring ourselves really focuses on this. I think for many women, it is denial, not because I'm busy, I'm tired, it's probably nothing, but I'm scared. And so denial causes people to really block finding things out. So I always say the worst part about denial is that not only is it leading you to something worse, but it really causes you to not go for that mammogram, for example, where you could find your breast cancer at stage one. So I think it's multiple factors. Um, but when I found out it was terribly painful, I had to have surgery. I got it removed. And then so at that point, you did not know it was cancer. You just knew it wasn't cancer. It was only endometriosis in my ovary. And the good news is for everyone listening, the majority, the vast majority of people with endometriosis, even if they have it in their ovary, will never develop ovarian cancer. But there is a small group of endometriomas, meaning that collection of of endometriosis in the ovary that, as you and I know, can transform into ovarian cancer. So that was removed. I was actually fine for several years. Fine, meaning I was going through pregnancy and residency. I ended up having nine pregnancies, six miscarriages, three babies. Um, And so my endometriosis was suppressed through those pregnancies, a tiny bit of lactation and some birth control until my early to mid 40s, where I was off birth control. I had had my tubes cut, not removed, cut. Because at the time we were only cutting tubes, and that's important for people who know yeah, that we'll get, risk we'll get reduction. To that, talk a little bit more about um, that. And I had just done weight loss surgery. I had lost eighty pounds, gotten pregnant by surprise at age forty with my third baby, was off birth control, had my tubes cut, and then my period slowly started getting heavier. And I did what is not inappropriate, which is I told myself it is probably perimenopause. And I had actually a few ultrasounds during that period of time. That didn't show anything because my periods were just heavier. And at the time, it was only endometriosis. But as it got heavier and more painful, at that point in my career, I had learned. I would never say to a patient, oh, it's likely nothing. It's likely perimenopause. It's likely this or that. I always have said, it's likely nothing, but let's check it out. And I would say to patients, my purpose in that is, it's likely nothing. Let's confirm it by checking it out either via, you know, depending on their complaint, Sometimes they need a blood test. Sometimes they need some kind of imaging. And the secondary purpose to, but let's check it out is if we're wrong and what we think is likely nothing is actually something, then let's find it early. So I have always been a proponent of finding and fixing things early, being proactive without being paranoid, making sure that you don't just blow things off. And this was the very clearest support of my theory because I went to my ultrasound tech. She did an ultrasound. I had a four centimeter endometrioma. She reminded me that I would, in fact, send my patients for an MRI if they had an endometrioma to confirm that it was just an endometrioma, which I willingly did only because I wanted to say to my patients, look, I did it too. Look, and see, mine was just an endometrioma. Don't be scared. And lo and behold, that minute, you and I both know as doctors, if the radiologist calls you immediately after a radiology, bad, (laughs) never good. It's never to say congratulations, everything is fine. He called immediately to say, this looks irregular. And the truth is that at first I said, well, I know it looks irregular. Probably it's an endometrioma. I'm going to get it removed. I'm in so much pain, but you're probably overcalling it. I said it respectfully. I love this person. Um, And as it turns out, a very long journey to the diagnosis, which was just a week and a half later, but there were a lot of things along the way. It turns out that he was very correct. And it was ovarian cancer that was from the endometrioma. So it was endometrioid ovarian cancer. 
And the reason it was stage two was that it had broken through the capsule of the ovary and there were a couple of cells that they had found. Mm -hmm. That said, for our listeners, endometrioid ovarian cancer does confer a slightly better prognosis than the typical ovarian cancer that most women have. And did you get blood tests for tumor markers? I think a lot of people are familiar with CA-125 and maybe HE4. Did you have those tests prior to your surgery? That's a good question. And actually, I learned so much more about ovarian cancer during my journey. I've always been a proponent of not doing CA-125 in premenopausal women, because as you and I know, premenopausal women with entities like endometriosis. With endometriosis, you're going to get a false positive. The CA-125 is a lousy tumor marker. It's not a good screening test for premenopausal women. And it's not even a good screening test, as you and I know, for postmenopausal women outside of a very narrow group of women who are at very high risk, who are in screening protocols, maybe. But let's just be clear to everyone listening. It is not a screening test. CA-125 is not a good screening test. It doesn't exist as a screening test. There is no screening test for ovarian cancer. In my case, my GYN oncologist, who is amazing, so well-trained from the best places, agreed with me when I said, it's going to be benign. I think it's just going to be an endometrioma. She said, yes, of course, but let's have you prepared so that you're fully staged just in cage. We didn't do CA125 because it was not going to change management. I was going into the operating room. Because I think that's really important because a lot of people who don't understand CA125, which really the purpose of it is to follow someone's treatment course and look for recurrence if it's elevated. But a lot of times people will get a CA125 and it will be normal in the normal range. And people are reassured by that. And while on one hand, it's somewhat reassuring, it is certainly not in any way a guarantee that there isn't a problem. And in fact, what is the statistic in 50% of stage one cancers, you are going to have a normal ultrasound and a normal CA-125. So the idea that these things are appropriate screening tests is just, as you said, not true. And so often women will go to their general doctors or even their gynecologists and request these tests and and they'll do it just to be nice. If, yes. And then women walk out the door thinking, okay, well, now I can ignore the symptoms. It's important to understand that if you do get that test, it needs to be interpreted by somebody who understands what it's looking for, what it's not looking for, and what it means. Because even an elevation in a premenopausal right. woman can be just bad endometriosis. So, right. I mean, it's really an important point it's, as we talk about screening and, and advocating for yourself. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point to just reiterate that many of you listening might think, well, let me just ask my doctor for the CA-125. Your doctor Either an internist, let's say primary care, might not know the difference. They might do it just to appease you, just like Dr. Stryker said, or a very um, appropriately educated gynecologist who knows that it is not a good screening tool. But the truth is, in their 15-minute visit with you, they have to do a lot. They don't have the time to educate you on the false positive and false negative and how much harm can be done. False positive might lead you down the road of surgery that you don't need with, with all kinds of side effects and risks. And false negative, just like Dr. Stryker said, could absolutely mean that you're now like, well, I bloated six months later, a year later, but I had that CA-125 and everything was normal. The only time I would ever consider a CA-125 in my practice is a postmenopausal patient who has a primary, a first degree relative or a second degree relative with ovarian cancer, where even then I would be very clear to her, this is not a screening tool. I will only do it if you really want me to do it. And only if you fully understand that even if six to 12 weeks from now, you have new symptoms, you will come back to us. And that's really my effort to appease her, but aggressively educate her that it's actually the wrong thing to do. And I'll take the time to do that because I talk fast. But most of you and I both have that in common. We both talk very fast. And I used to actually, I had a written thing to give to somebody to say, all right, if you want to see a 125, I'm going to do it, but there's, I'm going to give you some information. So you really understand that this is not definitive and it is not necessarily reassuring and you have to continue to stay on top of this. And then I give them this whole written thing that explains what we just quickly went through in, in, in 30 seconds. But you're right. Most doctors don't. When someone asks for a test, a lot of times it's just easier to do the tests than it is to go through through the whole song and dance. Okay, so get back to your story because I don't want to get off track with this. Yes. So, so you end up, you say you end up in surgery. I end up in surgery. I I say to my GYN oncology surgeon, if I wake up with a big up and down incision, I'm going to know that it was cancer. And if I wake up with my small little port sites, which I'll know that it was benign. And she said, no, 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 don't jump to that conclusion. I might be able to stage you even. So we'll talk when you wake up in the recovery room. And I wake up in the recovery room with her standing in my face, this poor woman. She was like my mentor as a resident. Yeah. And she is amazing. And she said, well, 
I can't believe I have to tell you this, but it was a borderline ovarian cancer, borderline early precursor to an invasive cancer. And she said, but you're fully staged, so you are cured. Great. Wonderful. Now, jump ahead. I had, unfortunately, some complications, and this can happen to doctors ourselves, despite being with the best of surgeons. It happens especially to doctors. Especially to doctors. And but, nurses. We used to call it the curse of the nurse. Know, you know, that they I would get it, some awful yes. complications. Yep. Yeah. Um, but this, this, surgeon, this surgeon is an amazing surgeon who's incredibly convulsive, and it still happened where my bladder got a little hole in it. So within the next week, we discovered that I had a hole in my bladder, which did end up needing a big up and down incision to repair. And in that week, the final pathology came back because the initial pathology was just read during my surgery, which is never going to be as accurate because it's done quickly to help direct guidance as to what to do during surgery. But the final pathology came back with with ovarian cancer. And so that was a big shock to everyone, yeah. including my GYN oncologist, who's, again, very adept. And the answer that she gave me at the time, and it was amazing and adept and confirmed what I know, which is how we deliver news to our patients really affects how they receive it and how they potentially even think and heal and and address their their disease process. So she sat on my bed. She said, I can't believe I have to tell you this, but it turns out you have stage two ovarian cancer and you're going to need six cycles of chemotherapy, but you are going to be okay. And it was the way she said with confidence, but you are going to be okay. I was like, okay, well, I can do this because I've done hard things. It's going to suck. You know, it's funny, and I'm going to digress for a little bit. One of the things when we in medical school, you know, the idea of how do you deliver bad news? And and I've always said, you know, you can teach people somewhat how to deliver news and you can give them a script. But at the end of the day, some people just get it and some people don't. And that's one of the things like you, I think I've always been good at is I, I start off, I'm very straightforward about the news. I don't beat around the bush, but I generally start off with, you're not going to die from this. You're going to be okay. But I need to tell you that this is what you have and what's going on. And you and I have both been on the end of watching medical students or other doctors give news in such a bad way. So can we, I just want to apologize on behalf of all the women out there listening who have gotten bad news from a doctor in a bad way. I think the worst was I heard a doctor, a colleague of mine who literally was doing obstetrics and, and he literally walked in the room and just with no preamble just said, um, the baby's dead. (laughs) Oh Oh my God. I mean, and the trauma that that, that the death of that baby. And then no one hears anything after that. Right. Well, the bigger trauma for that person probably was hearing the baby's dead the way they heard it. It's terrible. So you're right. You know, my theory is that many people who go into medicine are very type A, A plus science students. And I always joke the world needs a lot more what I would consider. And I say this not just jokingly, self-effacingly, but genuinely. B plus science students, meaning where I am good enough to know exactly what I need to know. And I am strong enough to know what I don't know and where I should refer people. Okay. What was your major as an undergrad? um, I have a long and winding history. I did four different undergrad majors at Georgetown, graduated with zero science and then did pre-meds in my post-bac program. Yeah. English and dance here, you know. English, French, Italian, and then American government. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm I'm biased, but I think the best doctors are the ones that, like you said, know enough science, but come to the table having life experience and knowing something other than straight science, straight medicine. All right. I keep getting off track here. I want you to go on with your story. So here you are. You've had your second surgery to have your bladder fixed. Yes. And, and you are now about to start your chemotherapy. I, I go to see Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, a wonderful GYN oncologist there who directed me as to what she thought my treatment should be, which was perfect because it coincided exactly with what my oncologist at my hospital in Stanford, Connecticut, shout out to Bennett Cancer Center, also said. So that was very clarifying for me that the exact same treatment was going to be done at my local hospital, which made my life so much easier because I was a mother and I was still working and I didn't want to have to travel far. And so that was helpful. I went through six cycles of chemo, which was 18 weeks because they were three-week cycles. I worked throughout it, but I reduced my schedule dramatically. And as I always joke, I love Western medicine and I love integrative matters as well. So I took my toxic chemotherapy to kill my cancer cells while also adopting things like mindset. And I changed my eating habits and I did acupuncture. So I really tried to meld both, which was not easy, but I had the luck of having support from friends and family to really help me. Um, during my first cycle, my incision from the bladder perforation completely opened up. 
Of course it did, because you're a doctor. I got a whole lesson in the wound vacuum, which is a remarkable, miraculous device that helped it heal over another six weeks. So I really learned a lot. I mean, it sounds it sounds crazy to say I am glad I went through it. And of course, in retrospect, I could be even more glad because seven years later, I'm okay. Um, But I do think that even at the time where I believed I was going to survive, but of course, one never knows. Yes, I was anxious. Yes, I was nervous. Yes, of course, I had that fear that I wasn't going to be okay. But I really tried to remind myself that I can only do, you know, the one next step. I can only be very proactive. I can only not dramatize what's happening. I can only believe and focus that I'm going to be okay and get through each thing. And this sounds corny, but I really have learned so much about it and helped myself believe that this was true because I saw how I was able to do it. I tried to find what people will call the gifts and opportunities in each each crappy, shitty little issue, right? The wound back person ended up becoming a close friend of mine, meaning the rep who knew the device and helped the surgeon figure out how to take care of my wound so well. She became a friend. Many of the nurses just became such sources of support. My patients, who I had kind of just like you, like nurtured and loved on them for all these years, loved on me back in beautiful ways. So there was yeah. there was so much beauty within a lot of crap. I mean, there was a lot of crap as well, laying in bed and being tired and not being able to work as much, not being able to take care of my kids the same way. I mean, and I recognize my privilege in having a team of people. So there's well, all not, of that. Right. That your privilege in having um, access to good medical care yeah. and uh, having people around you who supported you and who were there for you. And also having that background to integrative medicine, that had to be a big plus for you in terms of your recovery. Could you talk a little bit more about that, about how integrative medicine helped you recover personally? It was so strange. So basically two years prior to my diagnosis, like almost exactly two years to the month, I started an integrative health and healing um, master's, although I did all the work and never finished the master's part of it because I ended up getting diagnosed. And the work was one weekend every month, ironically, in my own hospital, we had essentially it was a survey course in all of the different modalities of integrative health and healing, things that were as kind of concrete as acupuncture and as woo-woo as dream therapy. And I loved all of it. And it helped me not practice as an integrative doctor, but really understand when patients are going through things, how can I help them with the very Western medical journey? And how can I kind of guide them towards this might be a modality you try. Let me help you find a practitioner. It ended. My two-year courses ended in July and I was diagnosed on June 17th. And honestly, it felt like, again, if I believe that the universe somehow conspires in our favor, it felt like, oh, All of these modalities not only helped me know about acupuncture and about meditation, but also just helped me have a kind of more spiritual feeling about the philosophical existence that we have, right? And so it was just, to me, it was remarkable that that happened. And so, and I would try all the things. I would say to patients as well, I don't think all of us have access and privilege to be able to use all the practitioners that are available to us, but whichever practitioners you can find that you can potentially have the time and money to afford, I think it's worth trying because you'll never know what little nugget someone might offer to you in addition to your Western medical advice, right? This is why I say the same thing about vaccines. I love vaccines. They're very Western medical and I will take a vaccine while I will also do some of the more integrative modalities to help theoretically boost my immune system whether or not there's concrete data to exist that that, yeah. that that works, right? Yeah. But even something as simple as nutrition, one of the big holes in medical school, and it's really no attention paid to nutrition. And the more I learn about the impact of processed foods and ultra processed foods and so much of what's going on in the American diet, it really has had an impact. And I, and I wish I knew more. But I think... It's very classic in America that I always joke, we try to do like the McDonald's drive through version of everything, right? Like, okay, those people in the Mediterranean countries are living well because they're eating less processed food and they're having a Mediterranean diet. Therefore, I'm going to do a Mediterranean diet. But we do it in a vacuum, right? We don't look at the holistic aspect of not only, yes, clean up what you're eating, but move your body more and, and exercise, but don't feel like you have to punish yourself for an hour a day at the gym. And work on your anxiety. I actually think anxiety. I think anxiety might be one of the number one drivers that we cannot measure, unfortunately, but the anxiety and what probably is the cascade effect of the changes in our hormones and cortisol levels and all of that, which it entails might be one of the number one drivers of how people progress in their life. Right. Yeah. And so listen, I've had a lot of bad things happen medically in my life a lot. 
And yet I think I've also managed somehow to use those horrible things like pregnancy losses. And my son had an Mm -hmm. intrauterine stroke to actually decrease my anxiety rather than ramp it up. And that's a hard practice, but I think it's really it's, valuable. Well, that's huge because you can't eliminate stress from your life. Nobody right. can. Not in the world right. we live in. It's, it's how you manage stress. A couple of weeks ago when I did an episode on why people gain weight and a lot of it does have to do with how we handle stress, whether it's the stress mm-hmm. of hot flashes and not sleeping or the stress of what's going on in the world around us. But chronic stress is going to have an impact on not just not just weight, but also inflammation through our body and how that can impact on things like cancer, not just getting cancer, but but how one recovers. So what I'd like to move to now is, as we've talked about your story, and I'm sure a lot of people are saying, okay, so... How do I know? How do I know if there's something bad going on? And the things that you talk about so beautifully is being proactive without being paranoid. Can you talk about the typical symptoms that women might experience if they have ovarian cancer? What to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to, and what to do to advocate for themselves? Yeah. So there's a little bit of a long answer here. I think you and I need to reiterate to everyone listening, there is no screening test for ovarian cancer. Those of you who think when you go to your annual exam and you have your pap smear every one to five years and it's normal, many people walk out thinking, oh, pap smear is normal. Ergo, I don't have any uh, any other cancers. And the we have to be very clear that the pap smear is only screening for cervical cancer. So please, 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 everyone listening, know that there's no screening test for ovarian cancer. Of course, they're trying to develop one. They have not yet found one because as Dr. Stryker said, our ovaries are sneaky little things. I always say they're deep down, they're very small. And so they can grow in a bigger space, even in lean women, where they would not necessarily feel it. Coupled with the fact that as women, we're busy, we take care of other people. We end up having a lot of bloating and pain and pressure because of things like our period, our cycle, what we're eating, what we're drinking. You know, we've exercised, so our, our lower pelvis or our back might hurt. So there's a lot of other things that confuse us about the symptoms. So again, know that there's no screening test, know that the signs and symptoms are subtle. And I really want to drive that point home because you and I both here, everyone use the term ovarian cancer is the silent killer. And I hate that term. I rail against it because I think what it does is removes any agency for women and doctors to believe that they could try to find it early. So it's essentially as if we've kind of washed our hands of it. Oh, it's silent killers. Nothing you could do about it. You just have to succumb and accept. And that's not necessarily true. We know that two-thirds of women are discovered at, at stages three and four, but it's because, by, by and large, those women have had symptoms for up to six to eight months that either they did not recognize, again, bloating in your lower pelvis, pressure in your lower pelvis, pressure on your bladder, pain in your pelvis that have lasted more than two weeks should prompt you to go to the doctor. So part of it is that women don't recognize the symptoms because the symptoms are common. The other part of it is that doctors, unfortunately, don't recognize the symptoms. And again, this is a really important point as well. It's not because doctors don't care. It's not because doctors are stupid. It's a combination of the system is so rigged against doctors and patients that doctors don't have enough time to educate patients on what the signs and symptoms are, to educate patients on what tests could be done and why those tests are good or less good. And then the added pressure of the insurance agencies who have obviously created this lack of time for us won't necessarily cover tests. So a classic scenario you and I know is a patient might come in and say they have some bloating, they have some pain, they have some pressure. I heard Dr. Stryker and Shiva Gofrani talking about this. Let me go in and tell my gynecologist. Now their gynecologist, who's largely, they're often employed by large systems, isn't necessarily given the latitude to just order as many ultrasounds as they need in order to pick this up. Ultrasounds are not perfect. They are not 100% going to pick it up. But as it stands right now, the only tool we really have to diagnose ovarian cancer earlier is a proactive patient who tells us her signs and symptoms without getting anxious and while realizing that bloating, pain, and pressure is probably nothing but she needs to check it out, and a compulsive physician who agrees that it's probably nothing but she'll send you for a pelvic ultrasound. Again, not a perfect system, but it would work. The the flaw in the system 
is that many doctors can't just order the ultrasounds whenever they feel like they need. But, and I just also, I want to back up for one second that I want listeners to understand that for the purposes of this discussion, we are talking about women who are at average risk, not people who have a genetic mutation that are at higher risk because the screening and the way that we approach that and what we tell those women is very different. So right now we are just talking about women who are at average risk of getting ovarian cancer and who have no reason to believe, you know, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't run in my family. And we know that the majority of people who get ovarian cancer, it doesn't run in their family. And while if someone has a genetic mutation, they are at dramatically higher risk. We're not talking about that right now. But but I do want to I do want to talk about the ultrasound thing, because very often women do get an ultrasound. And we talked about how the screening tests can be reassuring when in fact they're not. And the same thing can happen for ultrasound because Mm -hmm. you can get a a good quality ultrasound and you may have an early stage ovarian cancer or even a not so early stage ovarian cancer and it's not going to show. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as you mentioned, the ovaries are small. It can be sneaky, but ovarian cancer generally starts in the tube and Mm -hmm. that's even in the fallopian tube and that's even higher to detect. My mother, I think I told you when we met, my mother died of ovarian cancer and she had an ultrasound that was read as being normal. Now, keep this in mind. Her daughter's a gynecologist. Her son is a surgeon. She's seeing the best doctor. She had high level, fabulous ultrasound. And she was basically told, no, your gastrointestinal symptoms are from something going on in your colon. And ultimately, the diagnosis was made. But the point is, is that initial ultrasound, which she did receive, was read as ovaries look fine. The point you're making is so good. And again, that's why I opened yeah. with ultrasounds are not 100%, but right now they're the only tool we have, right? right? Now, the reasons they could be read as normal, as you and I know, are either that the ovaries literally look normal and she had a very either something like, which I think she did not, but in other cases, it could be primary peritoneal cancer or again, the pain was coming from the beginning of the tubes. That said, often women don't get ultrasounds. I mean, I still hear the right. majority of women who right. reach out to me have not even had any imaging. which well, Right, because their symptoms, as you said, were, were brushed off. So brushed again, off. under the heading of advocating for yourself. So a woman goes to her doctor. She is having persistent bloating. She's having persistent pressure on her bladder. She's having gastrointestinal symptoms. So her doctor does the CA-125 because she requests it and it's negative. She then gets that initial ultrasound, which is read as normal. What are you going to say to that woman in terms of what she should do to advocate for herself if those symptoms are persistent? Well, let's back up one. First, if a patient came to me with bloating, pain, or pressure, or any symptoms in her in her pelvis, I would send a urinalysis to make sure that it is not blood in her urine because there could be other reasons that you and I know. Make sure it's not a urinary tract infection. Do a pelvic ultrasound and make sure that we don't just say, it looks normal. Like really look and see what are they describing in the ovaries? Because you and I know that many ultrasounds get read as normal because they, the ultrasound tech or the person interpreting it, the doctor, I hate to say blew off, but didn't aggressively look at a 2.5 centimeter cyst in a 52 year old. They said, oh, that's normal. That's just. Or how often do they just say someone says it's normal Then I get the report and it says the ovaries were not visualized. Right. It's like, and so there, right, that's why I say like even hearing a pelvic ultrasound is normal, unfortunately, doesn't always mean anything. And then the third thing, by the way, is I would also send them to the GI doctor in addition mm-hmm. to because the the symptoms of ovarian cancer can overlap with certain GI cancer. So they well, really that's how my mom got diagnosed. It was the right, GI well, doctor who diagnosed her. So I think so. Let's go back. So I would like I said, I would t- make sure that your urine is evaluated. You have a pelvic ultrasound and you see a GI doctor who may end up ordering an abdominal ultrasound, maybe a CT, though there's radiation in that, an endoscopy and maybe a colonoscopy. So it's not a quick, easy thing. And again, this is assuming you have bloating or pain or pressure that lasts for more than two weeks. Now, let's assume all of those things are normal. I would still advocate to that patient that we revisit this Let's try X, Y, Z. Okay, because now we've seen that we don't think it's anything that we can find. Let's try to work on the foods you're eating, maybe changing. Do you have some form of reflux, something that we can fix? But let's keep very, very close tabs, like at short intervals, at six to 12 week intervals. All too often, you and I hear women say, 
I had an ultrasound, there was a cyst. And then I was told to come back in six months or a year. If you have a cyst in your ovary that needs to be revisited, you don't wait six months or a year because six months or a year in the ovarian cancer world is the difference between stage one and stage three or four. Right. Also, what you and I hear a lot, just like the CA125, is patients who say, well, my doctor just does an ultrasound once a year. Once a year for a pelvic ultrasound and an asymptomatic patient. Listen, will I do it if someone asks? Absolutely. But I will only do it with a very strict information to them that this does not mean that six months from now or three months from now, if you have a change in your symptoms, that you should not come back. And an ultrasound one time is not going to predict what's going to happen three plus months from now. So I think all of this to say, you and I know that it is very hard to find ovarian cancer earlier than stage three or four. But most of the time, like your mom's story is a little unusual in that most women's stories, and they've seen this in multiple data points, right? Is that when they present to the doctor, they have already had six to eight months of symptoms. Oh, she had, but she, she denied it. And we talked about that. And I said to her, mom, what did you think when you lost all that weight? Yeah. And she said, I thought the diet was finally working. Right? Like we're all <laughs> so excited about weight loss, right? I mean, so I think that the bigger construct here is that as women, we have so many um, aspects of, of this, like ovarian cancer actually represents so much. It represents lack of societies caring about, you know, female gynecological cancers to a degree, lack of insurance companies really caring about ways that they can advocate for their patients. Women having all of this damaging psyche surrounding things like weight, surrounding things like pelvic pain, periods, how we are completely brushed off and told that we should just suck it up. So there's so many aspects to it. And so what it really takes is I need like two hours with each patient to really direct her and teach her, don't be paranoid. The odds of you ever getting ovarian cancer are slim. Here are the things we need to know. Tell us about your family history of all the cancers so that we can help direct if you should get genetic testing, which I actually think millions of women are lost in the cracks. They have not gotten genetic testing and they could. Tell us about your history of ovulation suppression, either through pregnancy or birth control pills, because that can be really helpful. Let's talk about removing your tubes if you want to. Let's talk about the signs and symptoms. Let's talk about the insurance limitations and why your doctor might not have sent you so that you can actually advocate and understand and not be angry at your doctor because yeah, there's so also you're, that. You're aspect. talking about in a perfect world. And the problem that we struggle with all the time is that when women go to their gynecologist and a lot of people are not aware that it is literally 15 minutes on the books. And this is important. That is considered to be a well woman exam, meaning that's just to cover the basics. It is not to deal with a complaint, a symptom, a problem. And I think women need to be more proactive about saying, no, I'm not going to wait for my annual exam and have this expectation that all this is going to get covered at your annual exam. If you're having symptoms that are of concern, make an appointment today. And if someone you call up and they say, well, you know, your annual isn't due for another four months, you have to be very clear and say, I'm not coming in for my annual. I'm coming in because I'm having some symptoms that I'm concerned about. And then even though it's just a receptionist, you tell her what those symptoms are, because very often they will then consult with the nurse or the doctor and schedule that ultrasound before you come in. People need to realize that I'm not saying make your own diagnosis and be your own doctor, but Smart women can advocate for themselves to ensure that they they do get the care that they need. Right. You know, that require them to understand the insurance landscape because all too often you and I as doctors bear the brunt, right? Of people say, "Oh, it's because the doctors don't care." It's not. It's because the doctors want to try to save you time and money. And the truth is, insurance companies at an annual exam are only supposed to, like you said, the annual well woman exam is only supposed to be for screening, meaning you do, like we're just asking you questions and we're doing exams. So women do really need to know that so that they can advocate for themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, I talk about that a lot just in terms of, of menopause and painful sex and things such as that, because too often women have an expectation that at their annual well woman exam, that they're going to get a lot of information about things like menopause and how to manage it and what to do. And the truth is, that's not part of a well woman exam. That's right. a separate consultation. Right. And I always say, you know, if your kid had a problem or something, you would get them in there to deal with that problem. You wouldn't expect that to happen at their annual pediatric exam, but women don't advocate for themselves. I'd like to switch gears here a little bit in the time that we have left and, and talk about 
living with a cancer diagnosis. How many years out are you right now, by the way? Seven, seven, seven years. years out. Okay. Yep. So seven years you've been living with yep. a cancer diagnosis. What are, what are the biggest myths and what would you like women to know who are themselves living with a cancer diagnosis and not necessarily ovarian cancer, just right. any cancer, cancer. any mean, cancer. I, I talk about this a lot and I, I say it hesitantly because my, one of my dearest cousins who I adore literally died five days ago of pancreatic cancer. So I oh, never, never, never will make light of cancer or the very appropriate anxiety and fear that it kind of instills in it and inflicts on people because many of us know people who have died of cancer. That said, this is a really important thing for all of us to know. You and I know that something like 30 to 40% of women will be diagnosed with a cancer in their lifetime, right? Whether it's early stage cervical cancer, which is not as common anymore because of the HPV vaccine and screening, early stage breast cancer, skin cancer. So when you look at all cancers, the statistics are pretty strong that one third of us in our lifetime will be diagnosed with something. And yet the vast majority of those people will survive their cancer. It will actually be heart disease or long-term risks from things like diabetes and hypertension that are actually going to kill them. So, so if we look at it that way, we would realize that the fear with which we address cancer in our communities is actually, I don't want to say unfounded, but it's overstated right? In other words, if people are very proactive and get their screening tools that we have available, which is a colonoscopy at 45, mammogram starting at 35 or 40, depending on your risk factors, making sure you get your pap smear every one to five years, making sure that you do look at things like potential screening for osteoporosis or potential screening for skin cancer and know your family history and advocate by getting genetic testing done. You could actually stay ahead of many cancers and accept maturely that you might get diagnosed with it, but that you'll likely be okay. Like breast cancer is the best example, right? I don't know if everyone knows the statistic, but something like 90 to 95% of women with stage one breast cancer will survive, period. And and one of the things we hear is that breast cancer diagnosis is going up, and that's true. But more women are surviving Surviving. breast cancer than ever have before, which is also So I think that when we look at fear, fear to me is terrible because it not only, again, surges your cortisol levels and can cause all kinds of anxieties, but it also leads to avoidance. So how many patients do you and I know who, because of fear of cancer, because cancer has gotten this rap of being the worst thing ever, they've avoided their colonoscopy, their mammogram, their gynecologist, which means they are potentially losing the opportunity to find any of those cancers, which granted they suck. It sucks to have stage one breast cancer, but it's survivable if you find it early. So one of the the things also that, that people are always surprised to hear is how few women actually go to a gynecologist. And the women that go to a gynecologist for an annual exam are women that need contraception or maybe looking to get pregnant and all of that. But when you look at women over the age of 40, over 90% of women in this country don't see a gynecologist. If they go to a doctor at all, they're generally going to a family doctor or an internist who has been told you don't need to do a pelvic exam. You don't need to even talk about the vagina or the vulva. It's a no-fly zone. And so we now have the situation that women are essentially being told that area of your body doesn't matter. And and then all of a sudden they have a problem right. and we wonder why, how come it wasn't diagnosed? How come it wasn't, how come it wasn't found? So yeah. that in and of itself, when we could have a whole discussion on why women need to see the gynecologist yeah. until they die, but yes. that's, that's exactly, it's, you know, right. different well, topic for do, a different I day. will say this one plug. I think you and I both feel the same way. Please, please, please. Patients say to me all the time, like, well, do I really need to come every year? Every year things are okay. The whole point is, yes, go see your gynecologist every year, even if you don't need your pap smear every year, which you'll hear the guidelines coming out now that you only need it every one to five years. Please see a gynecologist every year and your primary care. And hopefully you're going to have nothing but a fun, boring 15 minutes where they just talk to you and you get to know them because the point of having that relationship is so that if or when you have bloating or pain or pressure or postmenopausal bleeding or perimenopausal heavy bleeding or any symptoms, you have a relationship. Because as we know right now in America, getting in to see a doctor, brand new doctor is hard. And by the same token, women are never told or often told after a hysterectomy that they don't need to see the gynecologist. And that's just crazy because most of these women still have their ovaries. They certainly have a vulva, a vagina and a pelvis and and a pelvis. Yeah, exactly. And so it is very often, even the gynecologist says, you don't need to see me anymore because you've had a hysterectomy. Are you kidding? So yeah, it makes makes us crazy. Tell us about, um, first of all, I want you to talk about your platform, the tribe called V and then also where we can find you and follow you and a little bit about you. 
So I'm mostly on Instagram. I kind of stay away from the other platforms. You're just not on just on Instagram. You've got like a million followers no, on Instagram. No, no. I'm I very impressed and jealous. I don't. Oh, I have like two followers. You know, well, you have all these followers. It's I, so I great. Frequently. It's not a million. It's 50, 50,000. But it's, I'm, well, I'm proud of my following. It's been an organically grown, very lovely, beautiful followers. I really love them. Um, so I'm there a lot. And I have Tribe Called V, my business partner and I. Jenny Hayes Edwards started Tribe Called V actually right around the pandemic um, because we wanted to really help educate. She was getting pregnant at age 45 with her frozen eggs that then were turned into embryos from when she was 35. And she approached me and said, let's create a pregnancy class. So we started it with a pregnancy class. We now have a perimenopause class and we're expanding our offerings to all the women's health issues that no one ever learned about. So anyone with a vagina, vulva, ovaries, uterus, tubes, everything, Really, people don't learn. You know, I would say like the hot button topics, herpes, HPV, endometriosis, PCOS, perimenopause, menopause, pregnancy, contraception, STIs, painful sex. These are all topics no person learns about. Even our colleagues who are doctors don't really learn about these things, right? So the purpose of our platform is to help educate through videos, through some written content. There's a lot of free videos on there, and then there's some paid content, and we're growing and changing, and we're actually relaunching and rebranding in uh first quarter of 2024 with a new name and a new look because we've kind of done it all ourselves now we're actually hiring professionals who know what they're doing to help us though it's really still going to be my voice in delivering the evidence-based information ideally in a way that as we say helps you increase your knowledge to decrease your anxiety because we're all anxious about these things right Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been terrific. I appreciate your spending this time and the work that you do. And this information will be in the program notes so that everyone can find Dr. Gofraney and take a look at the platform and the new improved platform after a few months. And this has been great. So so thank you so much. Thank you. Loved my conversation with Dr. Gofraney, but we covered so much ground. I wanted to end with a summary of risk factors, a summary of what you can do to reduce your risk and go over the symptoms that may indicate a problem. And to be clear, epithelial ovarian cancer, fallopian tube cancer, and peritoneal cancer are now all considered to be the same entity and should be considered together. So anytime I talk about ovarian cancer, I'm also including fallopian tube cancer, and primary peritoneal cancer that arises from the lining of the pelvis. So risk factors. The lifetime risk of ovarian cancer in the general population is approximately 1.3%. Factors that increase the risk, aside from a genetic mutation, include increasing age, an early age for getting a first period, late menopause, no pregnancies, and endometriosis. What all of these have in common other than endometriosis, is the number of menstrual periods, or more specifically, the number of ovulations that a woman experiences during a lifetime. Women that start their periods early and late and have no pregnancies ovulate more than women who start getting a period on the late side, have lots of pregnancies, and then enter menopause at a young age. There appears to be something about the ovaries never getting a break. While sometimes you'll hear that having obesity, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and infertility are also risk factors, the data is not as solid. Anything that decreases the number of times a woman ovulates during her lifetime will reduce the risk. Birth control pills do a great job of giving the ovaries an extended vacation. In an analysis of 24 different studies of oral contraception pills, there was more than a 50% reduction in ovarian cancer in women who had more than 10 years of birth control pill use. There's no data regarding the use of non-oral estrogen progestin contraceptives like the ring or the patch, but it stands to reason that they would also decrease risk. Pregnancy is protective, and in one study, each additional pregnancy decreased risk by 8%. Likewise, breastfeeding has been shown to decrease risk by up to 36%, and the longer you breastfeed, the better. The data on IUDs is not as solid, but is leaning towards decreasing risk. By far, the best way to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer is removal of the ovaries and the fallopian tubes, which is recommended for women who have a genetic mutation at the point that they're no longer interested in pregnancy. Even if you don't remove the ovaries, removal of the tubes significantly reduces risk, again supporting the fact that much, if not all, of ovarian cancer starts in the fallopian tubes. Hysterectomy, even if the tubes and ovaries are not removed, 
is associated with by as much as a 20% reduction in the risk of ovarian cancer. Since screening programs for ovarian cancer using things such as ultrasound, MRI, and blood tests haven't been successful, it's important to know what symptoms to watch for. The symptoms that are most consistently identified in women with ovarian cancer are abdominal distension, constipation, pelvic or abdominal pain, nausea, loss of appetite, or feeling full even if you've eaten very little. Urinary symptoms such as urgency or frequent urination may also indicate a problem. Obviously, all of these symptoms are things that pretty much every woman experiences at some point in their life. And in the overwhelming number of cases, these symptoms do not indicate ovarian cancer. The thing to pay attention to is persistence and frequency of these symptoms. In one large analysis, symptoms in patients with epithelial ovarian cancer occurred 20 to 30 times in a month versus two to three times per month. In addition, ovarian cancer patients were more likely to have multiple symptoms, specifically bloating, increased abdominal size, and urinary urgency that occur together are a red flag. And in this study, those three symptoms were present 44% of the time in ovarian cancer patients. So pay attention to your body. Know that the presence of these symptoms in most cases is not an indication of ovarian cancer. But having said that, these are the symptoms that should never be ignored. And as one patient said after I diagnosed her ovarian cancer based on those symptoms, I knew I needed to get my hiney to the gynae. Not exactly how I would put it, but she made the point. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Yeah.